Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Well, the highly anticipated debate between Senator Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker has come and gone. Now it's time for incumbent Governor Brian Kemp, challenger Democrat Stacey Abrams, and Libertarian candidate Shane Hazel to take the stage. Technically, it's a floor. But today at 7 p.m., all three will participate in the Atlanta Press Club's Louder Milk Young debate series. Now, coming up in just a moment, I'll ask Emory University's Professor Ed Lee, hey, do debates really matter to voters? Stay tuned. Plus, the Atlanta Medical Center was the local facility for incarcerated women to give birth. Now, with its closure, what's the new plan? And we'll learn more about the organization Motherhood Beyond Bars and their mission. Plus, it's on the National Register of Historic Places. We'll hear how a local foundation is working on community preservation for the ever-changing Sweet Auburn neighborhood. Good conversations coming up. But first, this... It's the first day of early voting here in Georgia. And as we hear again from WABE politics reporter Sam Greenglass, because you just heard him on NPR, candidates in the top races will still be busy. With the window closing to pitch voters, get out the vote efforts are kicking into higher gear. Former President Obama says he's coming to Georgia to campaign for Democrats in what polls say are tight Senate and governor's races. In the governor's race, incumbent Republican Brian Kemp meets Democratic challenger Stacey Abrams for their first debate tonight. That's days after Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker faced off in their debate. The midterms will also be the biggest test yet for a new election law passed by Georgia Republicans. That law includes cutbacks to ballot drop boxes and tighter absentee ballot deadlines. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. And speaking of debates, Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene and Democratic challenger Marcus Flowers, well, they took hard aim at one another from the first moments of their debate Sunday night. Flowers accused Greene of participating in the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. And here's how Greene responded. That was the third day I had on the job. I had nothing to do with what happened there that day, and I will not have you accuse me of that. That is wrong of you to do. You're lying about me, and you will not defame my character in that manner. Did Joe Biden win the election, Congresswoman Green? Joe Biden is the president of the United States. Absolutely, Marcus. but you pushed a big lie that said he did not win the election. There was and election fraud. You drove those proven. people to there the Capitol on January 6th with your lie. We're going to move on. <laughs> That's what I would have said. Green attacked Flowers for the millions the Democrat has raised to run in a district that is about 70 percent Republican. The race could end up being the most expensive House race in 2022. And you can watch the full debate at WABE.org. Meanwhile, former Georgia Senator Sam Nunn says he's been out of politics a long time, but he has some concerns about what's going on in current elections. He's worried about candidates who continue to question the, legit- the, the legitimacy of the 2020 election as the basis for their campaign. And if they get in key positions like secretary of state positions around the country, then um, we really are in difficulty going forward. So we've got to reestablish bipartisan support for the legitimacy and honesty of elections and the acceptance of results. Nunn says the most important thing to do now is to strengthen our nation's democracy. And you can hear that full interview with former Senator Nunn doing All Things Considered with host Jim Burris or online at WABE.org. Open enrollment is now underway for Medicare beneficiaries to join, switch, or drop a plan. This year's features some big changes, especially for seniors. Jess Mador has more. Open enrollment for Medicare began Saturday. And this year's offerings include changes to premiums and some drug prices. For all plans starting next year, insulin is capped at $35 out of pocket for a month's supply of each covered insulin product, and no deductibles will be required for insulin. 
The Biden administration has also announced lower average premiums for Medicare Part B, Medicare Advantage, and Medicare Part D prescription drug plans for next year. And Medicare recipients are eligible for free vaccinations, including for shingles. Open enrollment runs through December 7th for coverage beginning January 1st. Jess Mador, WABE News. Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens and other Fulton County leaders still need to come to some agreement over how to divvy up billions in sales tax revenue. So the 15 sit mayors in the county of Fulton and commissioners, they have until December 30th to negotiate how to invest the local option sales tax, also known as loss. Now, the sales tax revenue helps fund police, fire, and lowers property owners' tax bills. Dickens says he's fighting to keep the tax revenue invested in public safety. The two sides are meeting today. As mentioned, the first and only debate between Senator Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker took place last Friday. Last night, the Atlanta Press Club Loudermilk Young debates kicked in with Senator Warnock and Libertarian candidate Chase Oliver. Now, Walker was a no-show, and keeping in tradition, absent candidates are represented by an empty lectern. Today and tomorrow, more debates are scheduled. Here's a question. Are voters really swayed by good, bad, or eh, debate performance that's actually written in my script eh. and also are debates still needed should formats change well let's bring in professor edward lee iii from emory university he is the director of debate at the alban w barkley forum for debate deliberation and dialogue welcome to the program thank you for having me looking forward to the conversation let me ask you this because i, I know it's no pun intended it's debatable but i've heard and read the following they aren't worthless um but some voters find debates useful in making their decisions, but not pivotal. And I've read this, TV debates don't influence voters. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think that the, the the skepticism about the current format is, is warranted, but I do think that the debates are quite valuable for a couple of reasons. One is that they do have the capacity to reinforce perceptions about the candidates and to also offer countervailing narratives that get picked up by the media and moves the conversation forward. But the other, I think, more important is what Sam Nunn alluded to. I think that the debates are a critical ritual of democracy, and they are a reminder to the voters that they play a central role in deciding who will be the new leaders and what a peaceful transition of power looks like and what the seats of those are. And I think that the debates are part of that process. Are there key effective points that you think candidates should focus on in preparation? You know, I've heard everything from, you know, make sure you wear a certain color, you know, depending on what state you're in, you know, wear the, the, the logo of the state. I mean, all those, not only just an appearance, but are there some other effective points that you think candidates should always, always strive to do just in terms of that first debate or a debate period? Yeah, I think that ultimately the format is informing the narratives that we are hearing, that the format of one minute speech time, 30 second rebuttals really does shape these conversations up to be about personality and not policy. And so ultimately within that frame, we have candidates structuring expectations of who they are and who the other opposition is, but also trying to control the messaging and narrative that will get picked up by folks like you and others in the media. And so whether it's showing a sheriff's badge during the most recent presidential debate or reinforcing the notion of how small a labor room is and it can't fit a politician, that ultimately that's about controlling the messaging. The other thing that I think that I would speak to that I think is sort of universal that's here is that this is ultimately also about personality. Mm -hmm. Can I demonstrate and control how the public views me? In this instance for Herschel Walker, it had a lot to do with pushing back against some of the conversations about his history mm -hmm. and the shadow side of his personality and trying to structure a narrative about Senator Warnock that says that this is someone who's not always been ministerial and a caretaker. Well, let me ask you this then, because I want to get to format in a moment because I think that's important. But if candidates are practicing and, and folks are firing questions at them, we, we think, then why does it appear that sometimes a candidate looks stunned and they stutter? It's like, as my neighbor was yelling, answer the question, answer the question. You only have a minute or 30 seconds or whatever. So shouldn't they be focusing on the question, answering the question before they attacking the other candidate? Well, you would, you would hope so. But I think that this gets back to 
the piece that's about messaging and what they're trying to get done. That if you have a particular meme or a particular narrative that you want to get picked up, whether I answer the question or not, but I use it as an opportunity to reinforce that narrative, then maybe it's successful. That ultimately reinforcing, I saw for Herschel Walker, if you ask me, what was that campaign trying to do with that debate? Mm -hmm. One is that he wanted to leave the impression that he was debating Joe Biden and he was running against Joe Biden. And two, he wanted to demonstrate or try to prove that Senator Warnock was not trustworthy because he didn't answer the question. So even when uh, Senator Warnock answered the question, he was said, oh, you didn't answer the question in the way in which I expected. Mm -hmm. Now, I also thought that Herschel Walker was correct. There were several times that that uh, Senator Warnock didn't address the question. But what's the political downside for him of not answering the question in that format? Well, let me ask you, as someone who has moderated debates and someone who's been a mm-hmm. panelist, a journalist asking, and I'll be on one tomorrow. Uh, y'all just have to wait and see. Shouldn't you, and I've done this here on Closer Look when I've had the Closer Look debates. I can't do it when I go to other folks' debates, but I will tell folks ahead of time, I got a bail, you got a minute, you got two minutes, whatever it is. And, and, and I don't know, do you think moderators, have I been doing something wrong all these years? Should moderators really let these camps know, look, when I ask you a question, you got a minute. If you don't, when that minute's up, I'm hitting the bell. We're going to cut your mic or whatever. Because then that's frustrating to, to viewers. And I know they have a strategy, but the bottom line is you need to answer the question. Yes, I think that one of the roles that the moderator could do is to reinforce what the topic of that segment of the debate was about. And so we've asked a question about health care coverage in Georgia. We will come back to you, Senator Warnock, or we will come back to you, candidate Herschel Walker. What would you do about health care coverage in Georgia? So I would like for the moderators to have some free time to revisit the question mm-hmm. if they feel as if it has not been answered by the candidate in a sufficient way. And so more leeway that allows for the moderator to make sure that the topics are being addressed in a way in which they find appropriate. The other uh, is to force a conversation about the policies and not just about personalities. Mm. Let me ask you, so should the candidate play also to the undecided and actually maybe even say, if you're unsure about who to vote for and then go into their spiel or whatever? Because the base, that, that candidate's base, they're probably locked in, right? So who who are you really talking to? I think so. I, I think that in, in this debate that it was I think that Senator Warnock was trying to play the role of being a steady candidate and feel as if this campaign was over, that it was do no harm and to make sure that he left that stage without having people skeptical about his record and his history. And I thought that ultimately Herschel Walker was trying to change the narrative, that it seemed that both of them were looking at polling data and seeing that Herschel Walker needed to make some movements. Now, whether or not that's true, Mm -hmm. who knows? But based upon the way in which they were debating, Herschel Walker needed to change some minds and perspectives about who he was. And uh, it seems like Senator Warnock was not all that concerned about that. What are you paying attention to? What are you critiquing when you're watching a debate? Well, my my training is to think about policy proposals mm-hmm. and the comparisons of policy and that it's it's trying and, and testing it for me at times because it's very difficult for us to have one minute engagement about the way to deal with inflation mm-hmm. in this country. And when I hear a candidate say that uh, energy independence is the way for us to deal with inflation in the state of Georgia, I then become curious about how do we do that? What does that look like? What is the policy implementation? And that, that is not something that we allow for time to explore. So more policies is well, probably let me ask you what this. I'm looking for. Do you think in the future, and perhaps, and I know I've tried to do this uh, on, on closer look, should you have debates that focus, everybody knows, you're going to focus solely on health care, workforce development, taxes. That's it. We ain't going to talk yes. about nothing else. Absolutely. Because we're not, we're not looking for quiz show hosts. 
We're looking for people who are going to make a reasoned assessment about the challenges that are going on in the state of Georgia and what are the policies that they are going to support and advocate for. And that and limiting the focus of the conversation to two or three areas and allowing for a back and forth comparative engagements about how it is that we will address what is an established problem, I think is far more beneficial for the electorate than conversations about whether or not we're who you're going to support Biden or Trump in the 2024 election. That's just not very useful in my mind for a voting public that we want to be informed about policy and to be really the caretakers of this democracy. I read something that, that it was uh, something that had to do with tips for candidates. And this was actually, and I'm going to read this verbatim, take care and criticize the other side. Frequently best to use sadness rather than scorn. Use humor, definitely. And scorn, Tough words, best reserved for moral points. What do you make of that? Under, I, under take care and criticizing the other side. I, yeah, this is this this in some ways harkens back to antiquity, where Aristotle said that a good person speaking well uses logic, passion, and quality <laughs> character. Yeah. And so the notion of can we incite the emotional connections with people and their passions is something that is part of what I think the rhetor is doing, the presenter is doing. But I also would hope that they would be able to identify where there are laps in logic in the arguments that are made by the opposition and how is it that the public can use the information that is being provided to them to make a better decision. And so I think that it's challenging because they're only doing these debates one or two times during a cycle. But I think that it's vitally important because those are the only times that many of them are standing on a stage with each other. I have had conversations with people who talk about the importance of depending on the ethnicity or the other characteristics of the candidate. And let's just be really clear, because if you're a black woman, because of some narratives that go with that, if you have a Southern drawl, some narratives that go with that, that's still a thing, though, for some folks, because if a woman of color comes and I'm talking about a black woman and, and I know Stacey Abrams is in the debate tonight, but I want to have this conversation. because I want to be fair about it. Yes. It is a thing. how a black woman comes across if if they're even if they raise their voice, that gets perceived a different way within a, a white counterpart. That's just clear. Or with the white male counterparts. If they raise their voice, someone say, well, now they're being a bully or they're really attacking. I mean, do you do you understand all that when people raise those criticisms? Absolutely. I think that there are two challenges that show up that where you identify and we'll use Stacey Abrams as an example. There's both the risk of being the stereotype, but there's also stereotype threats that becomes a challenge mm -hmm. that to be the stereotype. If I raise my voice, if I get even excited about talking about the issue, it will be construed through a prism of the way in which we come to understand the appropriate way to be a woman and the appropriate way to be a black woman in particular and express yourself. But there's also on the part of Stacey Abrams where the stereotype threat shows up that when she senses that someone may stereotype her based upon how she presents herself, she starts to make a course correction and is not as energetic. Mm -hmm. She becomes low energy, not someone vested in politics, not someone who is serious about the politics in the way in which her male colleagues may be. So it becomes really challenging to be a candidate that doesn't fit the historical mold. But this is also not just about politics. It sure. shows up when we think about leadership. This mm -hmm. shows up and when we think about who should be on air, what images we have. So age becomes a part of this. We're starting to have that conversation, questions about what it means to be male and masculine. Mm -hmm. And and so all of that gendered race shows up in how the public views things. And we start to see candidates doing some very warped things at times in order to counter some perceived narratives about who they are. I remember being told, if you want to go on television roles, you have to get a nose job and you can't wear locks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was like, what? Y'all crazy. Uh, Professor. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> and they were. Yes. And are. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, Professor, as we wrap up, if there is an undecided voter out there, what are they going to be paying attention to? Because you just mentioned, you just laid out perhaps all the issues that are important may not even get addressed. So what, 
what, if anything, can an undecided voter gain from these debates where you get a minute for a candidate to answer a question or they go back and forth and they're interrupting each other, as we've been seeing, which is just that's timeless. I think I think the place where the undecided voter may find some value here is in the crystallization of their values and how they prioritize those things. That these are these are very different candidates, and they they have very different values and principles that they are forwarding. And that ultimately, as a voter who is undecided, I think that you are making some decisions about what value proposition you're going to prioritize. Is it bodily autonomy in one instance versus perception that another candidate is better for my pocketbook, better Mm -hmm. for the daily expenditures of my family? And so you have to sit down and decide which candidate best achieves the set of priorities you have because none of them are going to give you everything that you want. And I think that we just have to be honest about whether or not they can give us any of the things that they're offering. What is the one key thing you want to offer as we say goodbye to anyone who wants to ever win a debate? <laughs> listen, listen, we think that winning debates are about talking when in fact winning a debate is about listening to the other side and appropriately responding to the moment. I thought that there were several times in this debate where both Herschel Walker and Senator Warnock, if they were just listening to the other side, had opportunities for captivating rebuttals that could have changed the dynamics of the way in which the media picked up and framed that conversation. There's a reason. So why, listen. There's a reason why you're on this show, sir. From Emory University, Professor Edward Lee III, Director of Debate at the Alvin W. Barkley Forum for Debate, Deliberation, and Dialogue. Thank you so much for taking the time. We need to get you to help set these debates in the future. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being here. Take care. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And you're listening to Closer Look from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Now, some of you listeners probably can fondly recall when the Sweet Auburn neighborhood was really bustling. And we know, like, back in the 40s and 50s, Sweet Auburn was an economic haven for black-owned businesses, churches, nightclubs, eateries, newspapers. And if you're wondering how the area of the downtown Atlanta got its name, well, that's due to John Wesley Dobbs. He was a civic and community leader, although he never was an elected office Dobbs was once referred to as the unofficial mayor of Atlanta, and he gave that neighborhood the name Sweet Auburn. Now, Sweet Auburn was designated a National Historic Landmark in 1976, but in 1992, it was recognized as one of America's 11 most endangered historic places. Since then, there's been some changes. But what's the current state of this iconic and historic neighborhood? Well, joining me now is Shanae Joseph, CEO and President of the Historic Development District Corporation, which we'll refer to as HDDC going forward. Welcome. Thank you so much, Rose. I'm so happy to be here. I gave a brief historic description of the Sweet Auburn neighborhood, but for listeners not familiar with this part of Atlanta, tell them how historic and iconic this neighborhood is. Well, Sweet Auburn, I like to say, is actually the original beloved community. When you think about um, what Martin Luther King meant and the neighborhood that he envisioned, it was his home. And Auburn Avenue was that place. Mm -hmm. Um, It was the place where, you know, when we had our riots, I will say our massacre in the early 1900s, that whites were essentially jealous of the progress that blacks were making at that time and and started a lot of rumors and essentially turned into mass killings of Mm -hmm. African-Americans. Auburn Avenue was one of the places that we were treated to. And at the time, it was one of the least desirable places to live. And yet, 
as typically what black people do, we took a place and made it into something amazing. You have an area that is known for so many firsts, and not just African-American firsts, but just first in general. But when we think about um, just the banking institutions that we've had, the first pharmacist, mm-hmm. the African-American pharmacists were um, had their offices in the Odd Fellows building, thinking through the um, first um, funeral homes for African-Americans were um, on Auburn Avenue. But it was a very important, bustling, entertainment Mm -hmm. business district. It was a place where people, black people, were able to thrive and to live. And most importantly, we worked together. And I think that that, all of those things coming together um, was really what gave us um, this designation of being such an important part of not just Atlanta, but Mm -hmm. in my opinion, um, the United States. So what happened to these businesses then decades after the 50s and 60s that we just see and I know that the economy had probably plays a role in it too but then and folks will say this you know as desegregation became more and more which it should have been you know I guess for lack of a words popular or implemented then you started to see decline in some black businesses sure you you had a, a few factors you definitely had um, desegregation where now blacks were able to go pretty much anywhere to live and and to work. Unfortunately, when we did that, we didn't bring our resources back to Auburn Avenue. In addition to that, um, the 1956 Transportation Act had a lot of um, the highways came right through Mm -hmm. and um, dismantled our communities. And so putting those factors together at the end of the day, we were just not able to rebuild as quickly as we would have hoped. Um, In addition to that, especially where H, uh, where Sweet Auburn is located, you know, there has to be involvement and there has to be interest from our governmental agencies, um, our nonprofits. All of us have to come together and decide that the history and the legacy of this space is really important to preserve. And unfortunately, for quite some time, we just did not have that attention and that investment. And so as we started to have you know, this decline with um, our housing, economic mobility, all of those different things, we were in a space where um, we were not seen as the thriving place where we are today. So let me ask you this, is the key, and we'll jump more into the mission of the HDDC here, but is the key also to have, you know how a mall would have an anchor store, is the key also to have an anchor, if you don't have it there, to, to help bring back this, what you all call, you want to bring back a thriving and, and bustling uh, community for this neighborhood? Well, you know, Sweet Auburn should be the anchor. If you think the about neighborhood itself. the neighborhood itself should very much be the anchor. If you think about the contributions of not just the residents, um, the Martin Luther Kings, well, the John Lewis's, mm-hmm. the um, Maynard Jacksons, but also um, the fact that the civil rights movement started here. Mm-hmm. This is the birthplace of the civil rights movement, essentially. That in itself should be worth the preservation and should be able to anchor Atlanta into rallying around it and making sure that everyone who comes here knows the history and how important this area is um, to Atlanta. Now, you know some folks in, in Alabama would say, now, wait a minute now, don't y'all be talking about y'all the birthplace of the civil rights movement we can agree to disagree <laughs> they'll send me the email i ain't That's worried fine. about it <laughs> but let's go back to them because first of all full disclosure i love the curb market mm-hmm. i'm in there all the time y'all don't even know what i'm buying but greens <laughs> and oxtails and all that stuff um over the years we've seen some attention to certain certain businesses certain strips there so what are you all looking to do with with the mission and and you said it takes a it takes everybody it's going to take a holistic effort it does take everyone hgdc has been in sweet auburn and really martin luther king historic district for about 42 years um, we were on the forefront of the revitalization of this area um, really initially looking at our housing making sure that we were providing affordable housing but then understanding that as a community development corporation we had to do more than just provide housing and mm-hmm. so revitalization for us is whatever it takes to make a neighborhood thriving. 
So our focus right now is really looking back. Um, we've had a we've had a lot of success as it relates to Fourth Ward. Mm-hmm. Um, we were the developer of Studioplex, other projects like Auburn um, Glen, but Sweet Auburn has been neglected. Mm-hmm. And so our goal right now is having a very specific effort, um, coordinated effort with our other stakeholders to really build on land that we own to be able to support our other stakeholders that have projects that need to come out of the ground. All of us are churches and nonprofits dedicated to a very specific mission mm-hmm. of just revitalizing this corridor. And so how do we work together to, to um, visualize that? And you have that corridor, you have a stretch there, and you have some churches there, and you have some very old buildings. Now, you know, I get emails, people say, why in Atlanta every time they want to develop something, they want to tear down something? But there's some beautiful structures there. I mean, the Oddfellows building, I mean, there's some beautiful structures there. Can we do this without tearing down some of those structures? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, to be honest, um, my organization, um, sister organizations that we have, Sweet Auburn Works, others, it is not our goal to demolish buildings, to tear buildings down. We want to preserve that legacy. We run into a couple of challenges with one, again, keeping in mind that nonprofits and churches don't generally have a lot of revenue. They're Mm -hmm. doing everything they can just to hold on to the property. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, unfortunately, the economics don't allow us to hold on or to not demolish that property. And so we fight really hard to make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, But the other thing that we have to remember, too, is that we don't want to separate the importance of the legacy of what has happened Mm -hmm. in that building from the building itself. Mm -hmm. All of that has to go together. So where do you begin? Well, I think I think you take a bite at a time. That's what you have to do. I started this journey in 2018, and when I came on, um, the organization had not been in operation for almost 10 years, mm-hmm. somewhere in there. And we just started looking at what is the property that we own? What can we do here? Um, it started with a conversation about one specific parcel on Auburn. It grew into what now one of our larger projects is called the Front Porch. That project is going to be the first equitable development in Atlanta. Um, it's going to have affordable housing, affordable commercial space. It also has about 20,000 square feet of rooftop gardens. But then also looking at the programming. It's not just gardens so that they're pretty. Mm-hmm. It's gardens so that we can feed ourselves. Because right. there's a former, I think, funeral home that's now used as an event, funeral yeah, home. Like an event it's, space. It's an event space and an art gallery. Yeah. It was um, started by Geneva Hagerbrooks. The building was built in the 20s. I believe she started the business in the 30s with $300 in her pocket. Um, I believe it was a loan for $200 and $100 of her own money that she turned into a business um, that was making about a million dollars by the time we bought it. But what you also have to know is that there's another funeral home not that far called Cox Brothers that was also started by Mm -hmm. a woman. So we have all of this great history right here that's got to be preserved and we need to be able to tell people about the importance of it. How much property do you all own? HGDC is a, a significant landowner mm-hmm. in the city of Atlanta, um, or in, I should say, Sweet Auburn. Um, we are also the owners of the Atlanta Life, the original Atlanta Life Insurance Company mm-hmm. buildings. Um, Which at one by, point, it looked like it was going to be It did. It, it demolished. Was, that, I can tell you, that was never a thought that crossed our minds. Not your minds. Not but, at yeah. all. Um, and again, but that's also addressing the challenges, mm-hmm. right? There have been years where our taxes on the Atlanta Life Insurance Building were $67,000, right, for that one, for those two buildings. And so, again, as a nonprofit who leverages their properties for the greater mission, having to pay property taxes versus, you know, doing other programming, you have to make make this decision and we do the best that we can. How are you all operating when developers, and before y'all send me an email, not picking on <laughs> developers, uh, here she goes, how do you all maneuver when developers who have the capital can come in and start building around you, then that raises maybe your property taxes and it also may even change the character of the neighborhood. Sure. Um, Well, the first thing is partnerships, right? You have to have partners at the table who are extremely committed to the same mission that you have and are willing to be courageous enough to stand up and say that, no, we're not doing these projects for the highest um, profit, but we're doing it a way to make sure that we maintain the history and the culture. Um, I think the other thing is making sure that we hold on to our ownership. That is something collectively our stakeholders, if we can't agree on anything else, we're agreeing on that we're not selling the property to outside um, buyers, but really trying to work within the current footprint and the current owners to ensure that that black ownership remains because that's a part of the culture 
culture and the history of the um, corridor. Well, you're all a nonprofit. How are you funded? Where does the bulk of your funding come from? Can you? We um, are funded really through initially our mixed income product. Um, HDDC has not been able to raise the philanthropic dollars that it would have liked. And I can tell you it's an enigma to us when you've got the programs that we have that support racial equity that are important to affordable housing and community development. You would think that it would be a no brainer. Um, But unfortunately, we're still working really, really hard. The The philanthropic landscape in Atlanta is just very difficult to navigate for us. But we've made some really interesting and um, profitable real estate transactions. Mm -hmm. And so being that we've been partners in other deals, we've taken those resources and then distributed them back to Auburn Avenue and other programs that we have that we know support the larger community. Folks listening who say, well, if I want to come down to the Sweet Auburn, now I'm going to get you in trouble with this. I want to come to the Sweet Auburn neighborhood. What establishment must I check in with? Is it the... Caribbean restaurant. I'm just throwing that out there. Check in with all of them. You need <laughs> it's a safe. <laughs> you know, you can um, go to Hagenbrook's Funeral Home. Akazi ATL is our um, artist in residence. Four Keeps Bookstore yes, is still there. Four Keeps is very much there. You need to go see Chef Sonya. I mean, if you're on a diet, I would not do that because she will have you all off your game. But <laughs> tell you, Chef Sonya will get you right um, with her sweet potato cheesecakes. Um, we've got a Which lot of so great. Good. Oh my gosh! Oh absolutely my amazing. Amazing. I have. Woof. Yes. Absolutely amazing. So there's a whole lot there to do. And I think that people just have to take the time to really learn more about what we're doing um, and then be willing to come and contribute and participate. And so we can maybe perhaps bring you all back in sometime and if you have a, an update for us on what's happening because it, it is a historic and Atlanta has a lot of historic neighborhoods save your emails but I love that neighborhood I do it absolutely and I will tell you our front porch project um, is supposed to be completed next year um, late next year early um, 2024 I believe and that project I think is the catalyst to a lot of the redevelopment and I just wanted to say thank you so much just to our team that's working on this project mm-hmm. really hard it's a very difficult project you can imagine trying to deliver something to the community um, with with no philanthropic dollars at this time. So I just want to say thank you so much to our general contractor, um, Sovereign Cooper, our design team, um, Cooper Carey, um, Savant, um, Karen Jenkins and her team on our structural, all of those groups that have really supported and, and rocked with us through this time. All right. Sinead Joseph, CEO and president of the Historic Development District Corporation, HDDC. We were talking about efforts to keep the Sweet Armor neighborhood thriving and bustling. Thank you so much for coming in and taking time. I really appreciate that. Thank you for having me. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Now, as of last Friday, the Wellstar Atlanta Medical Center Emergency Department officially closed, and we know soon the entire facility will cease operation. AMC was the local facility for incarcerated women to give birth, and now in its closure, there will be a new plan, but also how the organization Motherhood Behind Bars has been helping, and also their mission. We wanted to know more, so we invited Amy Ard back. She's the executive director of Motherhood Behind Bars. Amy, good to see you. It's been some time. It is nice to be back in this space with you, Rose. Thank you. And I apologize when I called you to invite you on the show. You were at Disney World? Oh, yes. The happiest place on earth. Did you see Minnie? <laughs> no, I did not. Minnie's my girl. <laughs> I am happy to be back in Atlanta. I'll just say that. <laughs> Let's begin here. Can you tell our listeners as much as you can in terms of the, I guess the process for, for women who are, are incarcerated when they give birth, there, there are facilities throughout the state that partner, that they, that's where they go, right? Well, if you are pregnant in the Georgia Department of Corrections, you're held in one facility in Atlanta. And until about one week ago, any pregnant person in Georgia prison system delivered their baby at Atlanta Medical Center. Mm-hmm. And as we know, Atlanta Medical Center is closing, and we hope that there is a new plan. I do not know what the new hospital will be. Mm-hmm. We have three women who are due to give birth within the next few weeks, mm-hmm. and the caregivers will go someplace to pick up a baby, and we will find out then. Is that typical in, in most states? Do you are there, is, there, is there a state out there that has a process that you all think works best that could be a template or just through your lens? I really, I think Georgia gets this right. Really? Um, in that all pregnant people are held in the same facility. It's a medical facility. There are nurses there delivering at one hospital has 
and this is one of the fears that I think we have, there has been a chance for the relationship to build between the hospital Mm -hmm. and the women that we serve, the pregnant incarcerated people. And that takes a while. It takes a while for nurses and doctors to understand the complexities of treating incarcerated people. Atlanta Medical Center has done that well, and our fear is that we're starting over in a new place. There's a learning curve. Are you hopeful that maybe the same staff might, whatever this new facility is, we don't know yet, but are you hopeful that maybe the same staff would be there, or is it really just, it's not even up to you all. I mean, you can it's ask. Certainly, but, yeah, it is certainly not up to us. Um, what I hope is that we have staff at the new hospital that is able to grow in compassion in the same way that so many of the Atlanta Medical Center staff um, grew in compassion for the women, the women that we work with. Amy, I want to ask, how much time does the, the mother get with the, the newborn? Well, this was one of the exciting changes over the last few years. Women who gave birth from the Georgia prison system usually had two hours with their infant after birth before they were separated. Moms went to the basement and babies went to the NICU. And in 2019, we argued that this was bad for mothers and it was certainly bad for babies. Mm -hmm. And those moms and babies were allowed 24 hours before they were separated, moms to the basement and babies to the NICU. The women that we work with um, over and over again have said how precious that 24 hours was to them. Mm -hmm. We know that it is good for babies. We know that it is also good for moms. Uh, When we start over somewhere, we may be starting that process over again of Mm -hmm. asking for just basic treatment. Yeah. Uh, Let's talk about motherhood beyond bars. How long y'all been around? Our work started in 2013. Mm-hmm. We became a nonprofit in 2018. And in 2019, our work took a, took a shift. Mm-hmm. We support pregnant, incarcerated people and the infants that they give birth to and are separated from right after birth. Do you all also help the child in terms of making sure it's going to go to a family member or, you know, foster if that's the only option foster care it's a common misconception that all babies born to someone in prison go into foster care that is actually very very rare and we are happy that that is rare Um, our program supports incarcerated children the children of incarcerated mothers in Mm -hmm. some important ways one we make sure that those infants have the actual things that they need to be safe in the world and importantly that includes a lifetime supply of diapers Mm -hmm. for that child wow And then we work with caregivers, which are usually a family member, often a grandparent, to make sure that they have what they need to keep that child in the family. We know that these children are at risk of entering the foster care system. In fact, if you were born to a woman in prison, you are five times more likely to end up in foster care than if your father is in prison. Mm -hmm. So we are supporting caregivers. We are giving them the diapers. We are making sure that they are connected to food stamps and WIC. Um, to make sure that that child can stay with the family. And then we are working really hard to make sure that the mom stays connected to her child, even during that period of separation. That was my next question. Do you all make sure there's some type of communication, whether it's sending pictures or, Mm -hmm. you know, even online or something like that, that the mother is able to see that the child... I think it surprises people to find that every form of communication with someone in prison costs money. So every email costs money. It's 35 cents an email. If you think about the number of emails that you send back and forth every day and think about how much money that is, I think it's also important for me to point out that our research shows that the caregivers who come to pick up the baby, about 50% of them live below the federal poverty limit. In Georgia, the average is 14% of -hmm. people live below the federal poverty limit. So the people coming to pick up these infants are already very vulnerable, and they don't have 35 cents an email. So Motherhood Beyond Bars has been paying for all the communication between caregivers and mothers so that they can stay in touch. We know that staying in touch with your family is one of the best indicators of never going back to prison again, but we make that really, really hard for mothers Mm -hmm. to do. I remember um, there was a a legislation, uh, HB 377, Women's Care Act, Mm -hmm. and it I believe it it might be reintroduced next time lawmakers come back, but what have you been hearing? This bill, um, effectively what it would do is if a woman comes into a jail pregnant, she would be able to take a pregnancy test and appear before a judge, and the judge would have discretion to say, I'm going to release you on a no-money bond um, in order for you to have this child outside of a carceral system, and then I'm going to delay your sentencing. 
for a period after the, in the postpartum period. So it doesn't mean that it's a get out of jail or get out of prison free card. I wish that we could talk about long-term solutions and long-term treatment for women, but this would really delay incarceration until after the baby was born. But also, I imagine someone listening says, well, wait, shouldn't we also consider what the offense was or what the, what the if the person has been convicted, then, mm-hmm. you know, the details of that. I imagine, this bill would yeah. really only um, impact pre-conviction. pre-conviction. So it would delay the sentencing. Obviously, if a judge had a concern that this person was a threat, um, mm-hmm. the judge would not have to offer the OR bond and the woman would stay incarcerated through the birth. You told me a moment ago that Georgia is one of the states you thought that, that did it right in terms of having some type of process, some type of plan. But what does that say to you in terms of national? perhaps if there needs to be some type of federal legislation or some type of federal policy as it relates to this. There's a, a pretty well-known researcher, Carolyn Suffren, who says, um, we, we count people that count. We study things that matter. We know very little about what happens to incarcerated pregnant women in the country. Um, when I say that Georgia gets it right, it's a pretty low bar. They're in a facility that has nurses. We would hope that everyone has access to prenatal care. Do we really want these women to be getting that prenatal care in prison and jail? Could we not invest that money and and have get them real treatment outside of prison and jail? That would be, and there are places like Minnesota that are trying that. Mm. Um, it's It requires a tremendous investment up front. I would say we are spending that money locking people away, separating moms and babies, potentially paying for children to enter the foster care system, it's a really bad investment that we're making as taxpayers. Let me get your thoughts on, on this, because I was just talking the second before, there's a nonprofit, you're all a nonprofit, and Sinead Joseph talked about it, it takes a collaborative, a holistic effort for their mission. Is it the same with you all? Do you have lawmakers? Do you have the governor? Do you have input in partnerships from the state level? One of the things that we have spent the last three years focusing on is the impacts of incarceration on infants. And this has really led us into some new territory, infant mental health. When we talk about the passage of the mental health parity bill Mm -hmm. last year, infant mental health was taken out of it. Uh, we really want to see that get back in, so we'll be working with partners it to, was taken to do out. that. It was. It didn't. It didn't make it into that bill. Um, we are learning more and more by the day about the importance of infant mental health, recognizing things early, and providing um, providing services that can turn infants' lives around at the very beginning of life. We know that we are dealing with very, very vulnerable infants. From the minute they are born, they are born with a childhood ace, which is an adverse childhood experience. Having a parent in prison is an ace. Every single one of our children in our program is born with that one, and we're pretty confident that they have more. We know that they are more likely to end up in prison because they were born to a woman that's there. Mm -hmm. But we also know that there are really important interventions that we can provide from the moment of birth that may change the trajectory of that entire family's life. Amy, when the the Infant comes into the world, when infant's born, are they automatically eligible since their mom, parent, if there's not a, another parent to take the child? Are they automatically eligible for assistance for that, for health care and, you know, pediatric care? And, and what if there's a, you know, some other medical conditions that we have the some, infant may need? We have some room to work here. Um, the way that it has worked in the past is that when a When a woman is giving birth, she writes down a name and a phone number on a piece of paper, and that's the person she wants to be called to come pick up the baby. 48 hours after birth, moms go back to prison, and the hospital staff has been opening that folder and calling the phone number on that half piece of paper and telling them there's a baby here to get picked up. The hospital told us sometimes that was the first time they had ever heard they were going to be the caregivers when the hospital called them. We solved that problem in 2020 (laughs) with our infant and caregiver program. We get in touch with them. But the problem is those caregivers walk out of the hospital without a shred of legal proof that they have the right to seek health care for that child. There's no power of attorney. There's no guardianship paperwork. And so we are really working on that on the back end. Shouldn't there be some type of... I mean, you make folks jump through all kinds of hoops to adopt Mm -hmm. a child. I mean, shouldn't there? 
we know that these kids are vulnerable. We know that some of the infants that have been picked up by caregivers changed hands in the parking lot of the hospital, that whoever was there to pick up the baby didn't feel capable of doing it financially. You told me that last they, time you were here. I remember that story. They changed hands. We are the only organization in the state of Georgia that knows where every single infant born to a woman in prison lives. We can tell you what the socioeconomic status of the family is. We can also get them connected with the social services that they qualify for. Makes you wonder what happened before your organization came online. Well, I can tell you that the women that we talked to in prison, we ran a postpartum support group every week. One of the reasons our program changed so significantly in 2019 is that the women told us, our babies aren't doing well. Please help us take care of our babies. We cannot do it from in here. And we started listening very carefully to what they told us. And we heard that these caregivers were completely overwhelmed by the task. There was no one reaching out to help them. There was no social worker. They weren't involved with DFACS. There wasn't a, a social worker from DFACS, which was a good thing. But there was actually no one. And so we did that. What's next for your organization in terms of with the legislative, legislative session coming up next year? But what what are you all hoping you can get done? We... We are really focusing on direct services right now to our clients and our families. We are growing. We have four staff members now. I'm very committed to hiring people who have direct impact or who are directly impacted. My director of programming spent eight years in prison. She left behind a one-year-old when she went. We just last week hired someone, a mother who had been through our program. So we are growing um, and need help to do that. The Executive Director of Motherhood Beyond Bars, Amy Ard, thank you so much for coming in and sharing this story and talking about the work that you all do. Thank you so much. Thanks, Rose. Pleasure to be here. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel, and Pat St. Clair. Our engineer for the day was Daniel. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. You can send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it is always online, as you know, wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So, yep, subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. And stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.